All right. Well, last week we saw that John the Baptist was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Uh, We talked about what repentance is and what it produces in the life of a believer. We saw that repentance means unconditional surrender to God. Now, for those of us who have repented, he is the boss with total control over every aspect of our life. And that's the main point I was trying to get across last week is that repentance is not just something you do one time. It's not just saying sorry. Repentance is a change from the inside all the way out to the outside. And it is the permanent, unconditional surrender to our God over every aspect of life. Now we saw that repentance is inward. It's inward in response to the emotion and the will. But then it's an outward response of action on the part of the believer. And, uh, you know, I've, unfortunately, I've, I've talked to people in church so many times. I could, I'll relay one specific story. But I had this lady come up to me and say, I'm a little bit worried about my niece she uh, doesn't come to church. She won't come to church. She hasn't been in church in 20 years. Um, but it's okay because when she was a little girl, she prayed the prayer. And uh, I understand the, the motivation for self-delusion. We want our loved ones to be saved. But that is absolutely self-delusion because repeating a prayer once is not salvation. Now, you can gain salvation by praying a prayer to God for sure. But if you had 200 little, you know, uh, fourth graders and you took them to a Bible camp and you said, hey, we're going to give you watered down Kool-Aid and cookies. That's what I got back in the day when I went to Bible camp. And uh, they would pray a prayer to the great pumpkin at the end of the week if you wanted them to. Right. And so, so many times we have people that have said a prayer, but have not actually repented, okay? So we talked about repentance last week and how it's an inward response, but it works itself out to the outside where we can see it, which is why Jesus tells us things like we will know them by their fruits, right? Those who heard John's message asked the essential question of what do we do? Genuine repentance produces life change, and we looked at that last week. Today we're going to finish chapter 3. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 3, and we'll start in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, he was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. 
Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. All right, as, the, uh, as we read here, the, the passage continues to go on and say, the son of this person, the son of this person, and give this entire long genealogy. Instead of me struggling through reading all those names, I want to <laughs> get a couple of high points in there. In verse 31, we see that Jesus was the son of David, which was, we know from the Old Testament, a requirement for the Messiah. And then in verse 34, he's said to be the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that's where uh, Matthew's genealogy stops. But Luke goes on in his desire to show that, yes, he is the Jewish Messiah, but he is the Savior of all mankind, and he keeps going past Abraham all the way back to Adam and ultimately to God. Look back with me, though, in verses 15 and 16. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? I never stopped to ask that question. I've read this passage a bunch of times, um, but I've never stopped to say, now what exactly does the fire part of that mean? John's baptism was symbolic. It was a public declaration of repentance. Remember last week we learned, again, that that repentance is an action, not merely an attitude. So John could baptize you and there be no real change at all. I can baptize you and there be no real change at all. It won't save the unsaved, right? The baptism that Jesus brings, though, is salvation itself. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion, at the time of salvation. Now, there may be some who will tell you, well, that's not really the case. You were saved, but you need a second experience in which you gain the Holy Spirit. There are people that teach that, and they probably mean well, but they are incorrect. Now, it's true that we progressively learn to listen to the Spirit. We progressively learn to obey the Spirit. As we read the Word of God, we are empowered by the Spirit of God to understand it and to obey it. So if you were baptized before you were saved, then you just got wet. Because water baptism is symbolic, does that mean it's unimportant? Because sometimes I'll hear people say, well... Uh, I'm saved, so does it really matter if I'm baptized? Well, yes, certainly it does, because Jesus says to, be, to baptize people, right? And so if God commands it, uh, then it's important simply because he commanded it, right? But also, if you were baptized after you were saved, you were publicly proclaiming to everyone that you are now a follower of King Jesus, Now, I started asking questions that led to my understanding of the gospel and my personal repentance of placing my faith in Christ because a classmate of mine in school when I was a young kid was baptized. And he came and he told the class about his baptism. And that's really what God used to get me to start asking questions. So nobody can tell me baptism is not important because I know from personal experience and from my own testimony that it was very, very important. Now, what about the fire part of he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire? 
Well, fire in the Bible normally represents judgment. I mean, we're about to read in the next verse uh, about, about fire. And this certainly makes sense in this context because verse 17 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And that's the next verse in that series. So he may be saying that Jesus is coming because he was talking to a crowd, right? And so he may be saying, Jesus is coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, speaking separately, that these were two separate things. Salvation is baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Fire would be punishment. Jesus is coming either to be your Savior or your judge. Now, Jesus will judge everyone. That's true, right? But for the saved, he will judge you based on the merits of his life. And his obedience. So you will get a perfect score. It's like if you're taking a test. And there's there's 100 questions on there. And you fill them out. And you don't know what you're doing. You miss a bunch of them. Uh, You know, we got, let's say it's a 10 10, uh, number uh, questionnaire. If we took that and said, let's just go by the 10 commandments. And those are the 10 questions on there. Have you obeyed these all correctly? Well, we'd say, no, I missed that one. No, I missed that one. And then the Bible tells us that if you've disobeyed in one area of the law, you're guilty of breaking it all. So really, if we had to turn that test in, we would get a zero. But how God is going to judge us is he's going to take Jesus' answer sheet and turn that in on our behalf. And so we get a hundred on there, okay? So he will either judge you based on his work and his merit and his perfection or, and in that case, he'll be your advocate as well as your judge, or for the lost, he will simply be a holy, holy, holy judge and there won't be any help. There won't be any advocate. There won't be any substitute. You'll just turn in your (laughs) zero grade and receive the punishment thereof. Now we saw in verse 15 that people were wondering if John was the Christ. Because John was a uh, larger than life character. He was out boldly proclaiming the word of God. Boldly calling people to repentance. And so they thought, hey, I wonder if this is the Christ that the Old Testament talked about. They wanted to know if he was the main event. His response in verse 16 shows us the humility that really needs to accompany faithful Christian service. Now, there are two sides to this next point. The first one is, we must not idolize Christian leaders. John was an exceedingly great man. Uh, Jesus said there were none greater born of women. And that pretty much covers everybody, right? (laughs) Unless you got here via stork, that uh, talks about you. So John was the cream of the crop, according to Jesus. So if there were someone who had a reason to have a pride problem, it would be John. You know, sometimes you see folks that are really proud and have never really accomplished anything, and you wonder, what's, what's their deal? But then you see somebody who has accomplished a ton of stuff. He's a, you know, multi-billionaire with a supermodel wife and president of the United States, and you go, well, okay, I see how you can get a little arrogant if that's the case, right? Um, but instead of John being proud, even though he was so great in the eyes of God, he was truly humble. Instead of making much of himself, we see John displaying profound humility and pointing all the credit to Christ. Now, it says in in that verse that he was not worthy. He didn't count himself worthy to loose the sandal of the one who was coming. 
Now, a rabbi would collect followers, and these followers of the rabbi would go around hanging around the rabbi, doing everything the rabbi did, listening to every lesson that he taught, and they were also his servants. So they would do whatever he asked them to do. They were basically his personal, uh, personal slaves almost. Now, they were there by choice for sure, but they were there to serve that rabbi. The one thing they didn't have to do was loose the sandals of the rabbi. And we talked about this with foot washing. You know, foot washing was something that, that you didn't have to do unless you were the lowest of the lowest of the slaves, okay? And this loosing the sandal has to do with the feet and the respect and all that stuff. So that was one thing that the rabbi's followers did not have to do because that was below their dignity. Yet John said, I am not even worthy to do that, which is below the dignity of everybody else. That's how truly humble John was. Now, I don't think anyone here is likely to idolize me, but there are some extremely charismatic and gifted teachers out there. If we put too much stock in them, we're going to be really discouraged when they fall, if they fall. Now, I, the first uh, church that I served at, we had several different pastors, but one of those pastors, I got to, knew, I got to know him too well. Uh, <laughs> Some of you have, have seen the uh, inner workings of a church and have been sort of distressed by them, right? Well, I got to know this pastor well enough to know his, his character, and it was distressing to me. And uh, that came out in this entire staff meeting. And so it, it bothered me that my pastor did what he did, and I won't go into more details, but it bothered me. And this senior adult pastor there was a lot older and a lot wiser than me. And he came to me and he said, Steve, don't let this mess up your spiritual life. And I knew the right answer. I said, it won't mess up my spiritual life. This is one guy. It's not God. Well, this older pastor was smarter than I and wiser than I. And he gave me a good warning because really it did affect my spiritual life. When I saw a leader that I respected show his true colors... It was, it was disturbing to me, and it was disappointing to me, and it did mess with my spiritual walk. Now, I don't plan to disappoint you, but if I do, that's on me, not God. So listen to Christian teachers and leaders, appreciate them, but realize they are pitifully feeble in their own strength. Now, we should expect them to finish the race well. That's what Christians are supposed to do. That's what you are to expect me to do. And that's what I am to do. But they'll only be able to do that if they stay humble and they stay submitted to God. Now, the other side of that point, we must not idolize Christian leaders, but also Christian leaders must not become prideful because that is the key to their downfall. Now, this warning is not just for pastors. It's one that every pastor needs to hear, but it's not just for pastors. If three years from now we had two growing campuses and a combined Easter attendance of 1,000 people, do you think I would be tempted by pride? Unfortunately, I assure you I would be tempted by pride. <laughs> now, I could get stupid enough to take credit for God's work. Now, let's first pray that I have that challenge, okay? <laughs> let's pray that that happens and that I, that I do have to have that challenge. And then let's pray that I don't get that stupid. Sunday school teachers, worship leaders, um, etc. need to watch out for pride, too. I compliment 
uh, Jimmy fairly regularly on the job that he does, am I not worried about him becoming prideful? Well, that's not my job. My job is to encourage him. His job, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is to remain humble, right? So we need, we require, and we can't do it without the Holy Spirit keeping us humble. Pride is an ever-present danger, though. That's why the Bible tells us regarding overseers in 1 Timothy 3, 6. He says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil, right? So the Bible tells us, hey, don't take a new convert and make him a spiritual leader or he will become prideful and that will cause a fall. People should not rush into vocational ministry. You know, Jesus began his public ministry at 30 years of age. If there was ever anybody that could have rushed into it, it would have been Jesus. But he waited until he was 30 years old to begin his public ministry. Verse 23 of Luke 3 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Now, our next point is one that is really, really fast approaching. And that is that real preaching can get us in trouble. And I say approaching, but it's already actually here in our nation. Luke three eighteen through 20 says, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The gospel is foolish and offensive to the lost. We see in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It is folly, it is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So folks, we see that our message, although it is life and hope to us, it is foolishness and just offensive to the lost world. This is some really good news, and that is that Jesus' perfect obedience can be applied to you. Uh, you know, you got to ask, why was Jesus baptized? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, right? When do we need repentance? Well, we need repentance when we sin. So why was Jesus undergoing a baptism of repentance? Now, contrary to the statements of the eminent theologian and CNN anchor Don Lemon, Jesus was indeed perfect. Now, I don't know if you saw that. Hopefully, you don't waste your brain cells looking at CNN. But there was a segment on there where Don Lemon was talking to whatever Cuomo brother is not the governor, but it's on CNN. And he was explaining to him that Jesus wasn't perfect. Jesus didn't claim to be perfect when he was here on earth. Um, so I don't know where this guy gets his information, but that, my friends, is fake news. Okay. Uh, so why, if Jesus was indeed perfect, why was he baptized? Well, he did everything that you and I should have done. He obeyed God in every way that you and I 
should have, but failed to do. He fulfilled the law down to the last little tiny minute detail on your behalf. When a believer is saved, he exchanges his unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. If we go back to that example of our test score, we've got the Ten Commandments on there. We make a zero, every single one of us. And you may say, well, hang on, I'd make a 40, you know, because I kept four of them. Well, but then the Bible says if you've broken the law in any regard, you've broken the whole law. So really, every single one of us would have a zero on that test. And Jesus exchanges his answer key for ours, right? And that is how we gain his righteousness, not our own. Do you want to know what pleases God the Father? God the Son pleases God the Father. That's why all of us who are in Christ have God as a Father who is pleased with them. And guys, that's the point that a lot of Christians don't understand. We don't understand how loved and how accepted we are before God the Father. We say, look, I had a bad week. I I wasn't very spiritual this week. You know, when I should have been reading my Bible, I was binging on Netflix or whatever. And we say, "I I don't feel like God is real happy with me this week. Well, thankfully, your, your feeling on that doesn't affect the truth of your relationship with God. Now, should you waste all your time on Netflix and not reading your Bible? No, of course you shouldn't, and you know that. But God is not displeased with you at that point. Now, he will correct sin, right? He says, because I am a loving father, I will chastise those whom I love. And so there can be a time when God is, is bringing you away from sin and back into line by chastisement. But the only reason that he does that is because you are a beloved son or daughter and he loves you. Romans 8.1 tells, uh, if, you have, if you don't have this memorized, memorize it. And then when you are feeling low and feeling like God doesn't love you and, and that there's... Uh, You know, you just can't be good enough for God. He's great and he's glorious. And why in the world would he put up with a wretch like you? Say this verse to yourself. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have, by repentance and faith, placed yourself in Christ, then you are entirely loved and accepted by God forevermore. Now, Paul will say in his writings, does that give us license to sin? Then do we say, oh, well, grace is so great, we'll just sin all we want. Well, folks, the believer does sin all he wants. He sins more than he wants because he doesn't want to, right? That's the point, folks. Repentance being from the inside to the outside. It's not that we turn over a new leaf and correct some of our behavior and try to get to where we eventually like it. It's that we have a work of God, the Holy Spirit on the inside that changes what we want and that works itself out to the outside. Now you say, well, that sounds good, but I still do want to sin sometimes. <laughs> well, I do too or I wouldn't do it. I understand that. Uh, none of us sins you know, against our will. But it's a progressive work and it's a work that we have to endeavor to, uh, to accomplish. Now the work of salvation is not a progressive work. That is a work done by God on the believer. But the work of sanctification, that's hard work. That's reading your Bible. That's understanding your Bible. That's obeying your Bible, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But that's what real salvation is, folks. It's not working from the outside in. It is working from the inside out. 
Another thing that we see in verses 21 through 22 is we see the Trinity on display. You know, sometimes I hear folks um, say, well, the Trinity isn't, isn't in Scripture. And the word Trinity may not be in Scripture, but the Trinity is in Scripture, and we can see it right here. Verse 21 of Luke 3 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus was praying, the Holy Spirit was descending, and God the Father was speaking from heaven, right? There's this ancient heresy uh, called several different names, but one of them is modalism, all right? And what modalism taught was, well, God was Jehovah in the Old Testament, and then he was Christ in the New Testament, and now post that New Testament era, he is the Holy Spirit. Now that is, is not true. It is a heresy. There's a sign just down the road for a oneness uh, universalist church. The oneness part of that means they deny the Trinity. They say that God is one, one person in essence and one person in person as well. And he appears in these different forms at different times. And I think sometimes we teach that accidentally. Because we'll try to give an illustration and we'll say, look, if you're thinking about the Trinity, let's think about... You know, water and ice and water vapor. It's the same substance, but it's different states of that substance. Well, really, that's kind of teaching modalism, right? Because a piece of water can either be liquid, solid, or gas, right? It can't be all three at one time. And so even how we talk about the Trinity, we have to be careful or we will give our young folks the wrong impression. So really, what is correct is saying that God is one in essence and three in person. And you say, well, I can't totally get my head around that. Well, right, because you're, you're human. You can't totally get your head around that. But the biblically correct way to speak about it is that he is one in essence and three in person. So further good news that we see in this passage is that Jesus is Savior of both Jews and Gentiles. Verses 23 through 28 give us the high points of Jesus' genealogy back to Adam. In our introduction to Luke, we said that one of the things that separates Luke from the other writers is that he distinctively is writing in such a way as to show Gentiles that this is not just a Jewish dude that doesn't have anything to do with you. This is the Savior of the entire world. He stresses that Jesus is the Savior of the Jews and the Gentiles. The offer of the gospel is open to everyone now, let me tell you what that is um, for two reasons. One, I want you to hear the gospel. Two, I want you to be able to reproduce what I say, all right? When you're talking to your loved one, I want you to be able to say, here's the gospel. Because, guys, we get ourselves knotted up and we feel like it's hard to say. Let me tell you how easy it is. It's this easy. We all have sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is holy, and therefore he cannot just excuse sin. He can't just... Wink at sin and say, no big deal. Because he's holy. And a, a righteous judge can't just let it go. He's got to judge fairly. So we got a problem. We're sinners and God's holy. So the solution to that problem is nothing that we could do. So God solved that problem for us in sending Jesus, his son, to live the life we should have lived. And, and take that test score thing and use it with people. Say, look, 
We took this test of the Ten Commandments. We got a zero. Jesus is willing to give us his in exchange for ours. Because he paid for our sins on the cross. And he will give us the righteousness that is his. And we can be judged on that. That's the gospel. And then you've got to tell them about repentance like we talked about last week. Um, because I, I mentioned last week that the rich young ruler came to Jesus. And he said, hey, what do I have to be... What I have to do to be saved. And Jesus knew where his problem was. He knew that he had an idol. And he knew that idol happened to be money with this guy. And he said, well, sell what you got, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And this guy claimed that he had kept all of the Ten Commandments. But he didn't even keep the first one. Because the very first one says, you will have no other God before me. And yet this guy had money as his primary God. And so what's instructive for us there, a lot of things instructive, but one of them is Jesus didn't say, okay, I wasn't serious about the repentance part. Let me give you a watered down version. Because that's what we teach in churches sometimes. We say you can have God as your savior and then eventually when you mature enough, you can accept him as your Lord. Now it's a package deal. (laughs) It is a package deal. Unconditional surrender in repentance and then accepting Christ's merit on our behalf. That's what salvation is. Now, God has given you the opportunity to hear the gospel. Have you repented and believed? If not, do it now. 1 Corinthians uh, 6 says, Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. If not, repent and believe. If you have, though, please use your voice and your connections and your family ties and your friendships to let other people hear that gospel. Now we're going to have an invitation. And uh, if you are here and you say, I want to be saved, come talk to me. If you say, hey, I want you to pray for me and with me, it'd be my honor to do that. And if you want to join our church, come and tell us and we'll tell you how to start that process. But let me tell you, Luke is... um, Luke has, has been a beneficial study so far, and I know it's going to continue to be. But guys, passages that we've read over and over, we can get a little stale too. We can, we can read them without really paying attention to the words. It's kind of like some of the songs that we've sung for 30 or 40 years. They may be great, but eventually we can get to where we do it by road and we don't listen. So what we're doing in Luke is trying to take the time to say, all right, we've heard repentance since we were you know, little kids if we were in church. What really is repentance? And we need to look at that kind of thing. And then when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to baptize you, with, or John says, Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, I want us to slow down, see what that says, and see the good news of the gospel. You know, it's funny to me that, that the Bible says here that all the stuff about the winnowing fork, and he's going to separate, and he's going to throw the chaff into the fire. And then the next verse says, John kept teaching them good news. <laughs> And that doesn't sound like good news, does it? That sounds distressing and scary. Well, the good news is you don't have to be part of the chaff. You can be part of the wheat. Amen? All right. Come on, brother.